And again, the crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you, he replied. And again, when he says, what did Moses command you? Uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So he's saying, what does Torah say? What does God's word say? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this instruction. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And those are not just the words of Jesus, but he is quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Later, when they were in the house, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is our word for today. You may be seated. So obviously the topic is, is the topic of divorce. And this was a hot topic in Jesus' day. It was one that was debated uh, primarily by the rabbis, uh, the Torah teachers. Uh, the reason why it was a hot topic is because in Jesus' day, divorce was, was prevalent, and that I was kind of shocked to discover this. Um, the, the only difference probably from Jesus' day to, to our day is that the divorcing that was done in Jesus' day was only by a man. Um, a man divorced his wife, a wife did not divorce her husband. Uh, that's culturally how it was in that day. Um, and that's how it's different from our day. Uh, but the reason why divorce was so prevalent in Jesus' day is because it was made easy by the rabbis, the Torah teachers. And just so you know, uh, the rabbis, uh, the Torah teachers are the Pharisees. And it's the Pharisees who are coming to Jesus now with, with this question. And I know what you're asking, like on what basis did, did, they, did they make divorce so easy and permissible? Well, they looked to uh, Deuteronomy 24. Again, this is uh, from the five books of Moses. Um, and, and this is what the first verse says. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, or literally it means indecent to him, because he, yeah, because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And you're already in this text and it goes on for, for several verses uh, with, with the main thing being just what transpires uh, when divorce happens. And what you need to know, the context of Deuteronomy 24 is a much different context than we have today. That was a patriarchal world where every person's life was ordered around their Beidav. And Beidav simply means house of the father. Um, that's maybe uh, the word for family. And you really couldn't exist outside of Beidav. Everyone recognized that. Your meaning, your worth, 
your dignity, it all came from the Beit Av to which you belong. This is why in Jesus' day, when divorce happened, there needed to be a certificate uh, because everything needed to be writing. Uh, and this is mainly about protecting the woman because the woman now is, is going to be outside of Beit Av. Her Beit Av was with her husband. Now she doesn't have that. So Deuteronomy 24 uh, spells a lot of that out. In fact, the word house uh, is the word that is most used in that text. And when you read that text closely, Deuteronomy 24 is not prescribing divorce, it's just describing divorce as something that will happen. And because of divorce, then Deuteronomy 24 gave them instruction on how this must be treated. And Jesus is such a brilliant teacher. Uh, he takes their question, he responds to their question with his own question, what does Moses say about this? What is God's word? What do the first five books of Moses say about the question of divorce? And he's really using this question to, to tease out their position. And they play their cards. And now Jesus is gonna just, once their cards are on the table, he's gonna just blow this whole thing up. He starts in verse five, he says, Moses permitted divorce because of their hardness of heart. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say their hardness of heart. He says, your hardness of heart. In other words, what he's saying is, Moses allowed a divorce for the same reason you are asking this question and then looking for a loophole in that verse, which tells me your heart is hard. See, when we go to places in, in God's word to justify something that's, that clearly goes against God and then we twist that word to justify ourselves, that's usually a, a clear sign of hard-heartedness. Jesus then takes them to the text that they should be looking at, that should govern this whole debate. Look at verses six to nine. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And if you want to know why Jesus is against divorce, probably like no one in his day, is because of his understanding of marriage. See, we can't biblically talk about divorce until we first have a biblical understanding of marriage. And this week, I, I, I literally asked, like, because I feel responsible as a pastor of this church, does, does our church have a biblical understanding of marriage? And I couldn't help but reflect on, on all the attitudes uh, conveyed today uh, towards divorce and towards marriage and how marriage has fallen on hard times. I mean, marriage has been trivialized. It, it, it's, 
It's one of many lifestyle options. You can have marriage any way you want it, whatever terms, uh, however you want to define marriage, uh, you, can, you can have it today. Uh, it, it's been defiled. It's been defiled by affairs and sexual immorality. It's been defiled by abuse and chauvinism. Marriage has been humiliated. It's, it's, it's been redefined to the point where it bears little resemblance to what we just read out of God's word. And I'd say as, as a parent, um, maybe one of the saddest things is just how marriage today for, for our kids, is, it, it, it's almost become a joke. I mean, not only is the divorce rate so high, but this, this younger generation coming of age is confused, they're skeptical, they're scared, and so many are just flat out rejecting the institution of marriage wholesale. Or then even when you uh, hear how uh, people today ponder the option of marriage or those who are married, how they take stock of their marriage, uh, they do it on the basis of what's in it for me or have I found Mr. Right or the girl of my dreams? Am I in love? I mean, this is how we evaluate. And probably what's most disturbing is this is not just a description of our world, but this describes the church, Christians, followers of Jesus. And that's why I think this text here isn't by accident. Mark actually puts this in this section. And remember this section uh, where Jesus is walking from one mountain to another, from the Mount of Transfiguration to the Mount of Crucifixion. And so this is more than just a journey from point A to point B. But here is where Mark is laying out what true discipleship looks like. This isn't just the path that Jesus is called to walk, but as he's walking it, he's says, come, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Walk it with me. That's a disciple. In marriage then, this is not parenthetical to the path. This is what discipleship looks like for husbands and for wives. And I want you to know that what's gonna be laid out today I just wish, I'm applying this to my own heart and to my own life, that we would just stop looking at the world and say, what's wrong with the world? We'd stop judging the world. We'd stop condemning the world. We'd stop expecting even things out of the world that this, this, is, for, this is for a disciple. This is for the church. And we need to get our own house in order. For our world to change, we are the ones that must change. It's when we become good disciples. So this is a word for disciples. And I'd say more than ever, we are desperate to hear what God has to say on this topic of marriage. And Jesus takes us right to the starting place. He takes us to Genesis. He's quoting Genesis 1. Then he brings in Genesis 2. And just, I think, by just listening to those words uh, that Jesus says, you, you, you can feel how subversive God's word is on marriage. In fact, if, if we could fully grasp what God intended for marriage, and as disciples could live into that and live 
live that out in our world, I, I, I don't think our world would know what to do with us. I mean, I think they would think we're like Martians from another planet. But isn't that what Jesus says? My kingdom is not of this world. It's from a different world. And it's so important that we today start looking like that king and reflect that kingdom that's not of this world, but of another world. And marriage is a good place to start. Go with me to Genesis 2 right now, the text that Jesus quotes. Let's look at this. Beginning with verse 18, you can read it in your own Bibles or you can just tune in to, to these words as I read them. The Lord God said, again, this is the end of God creating the world. He's coming to the end. He's putting on the finishing touches. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called that living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from that rib that he had taken from the man and he brought her to him. And the man broke out in song. Here's the first song or poetry in the Bible. Now, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh for she shall be called Isha for she was taking, taken out of the Ish. And this is why, here's Jesus, the words Jesus just gave this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united with his wife, that they will become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think literally everything we need to know about marriage is right in this text, or almost. <laughs> I mean, when God creates, if you know Genesis 1, after each day, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And now all of a sudden, he's coming to the end of creation. And for the first time in verse 18 of chapter 2, he looks at his creation. He says, this is not good. And this is not uh, Adam's conclusion. This is something that, that God concluded as he looked at creation so God says, I will make a helper suitable, suitable for him. Now, helper suitable, oh, we've really butchered what this is in the original language. In the original language, it's the Hebrew clause, an etzer kenedgo. The word etzer is most often used in a military context. It's, it, it's throughout the Bible. And so really words like warrior, or rescuer, or even savior, get at the true meaning of this word etzer. In fact, this word is most used of God. God, my eyes look up to you because you are my etzer. You are my warrior, you are my rescuer, you are my savior. And this is what God made woman to be. A man's match in every way. 
a warrior, a rescuer, a savior. And not just an etzer, but, but an etzer kinedgo. Um, kinedgo is, 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 is like saying yang to his yang. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a complicated word, but, but, but when you are married, you understand that yin-yang thing. And it's supposed to be a beautiful thing, but sometimes it's a complicated, challenging thing. Um, but that's literally what, what, what God is saying. But this is absolutely everything a husband needs, isn't Edzer Kinedgo? So God says, I'm going to make this. And then in verses 19 and 20, there's a sudden switch now from Adam's aloneness to him naming the name animals. And what God is doing as he's bringing uh, these animals to him, he sees, oh, there's a she-lion and a male lion. There's a, a, a she-cow and, and a he-cow. Where's my she? And so it, it, it dawns on him. And then you have verse 21 and 22 of God bringing Eve to Adam. And you have to understand, Eve is the, the final crowning act of God's creation. She is an image bearer just like Adam. And what you have going on here is the first wedding ceremony. God is walking his creative masterpiece, uh, Eve, down the aisle. And trust me, Adam, when he sees her, is ecstatic in every way. Eve is absolutely perfect to him. And then verse 24, immediately there is this word, therefore, meaning there is a logic and a design attached to marriage. And that's why Jesus interprets that therefore for this reason. Marriage, we have to know this, did not evolve out of humans' ideas and conventions. It's not a human construct. Marriage is God's idea. And Jesus, as the second person in the Trinity, is God. Marriage is Jesus' idea. Christ designed marriage. And he designed marriage for massive purpose. The first is for oneness. Look at verses 24 and 25. And the two shall become one. One flesh. But this, this oneness is so much more than a sexual union. It's, it, it's total life union. It's, it, it's union of shared values and beliefs and shared dreams. It's a shared life mission. Husband and wife are now life partners together in total solidarity with each other. This is why marriage can never be about me. It can never be I, I, I. In fact, all autonomy is thrown right out the window when you get married. When you get married, you don't even have a body anymore. You don't have secrets. You don't have private parts. You don't have private places. You don't have private bank accounts. My definition of marriage is two best friends who do life together at the deepest level till death do they part. 
And this is why the last verse, where it says about Adam and Eve, after they became one, they were naked with no shame. Marriage is the place where we experience that. Now, to our world, nakedness is, is always connected to eroticism, but in the Bible, nakedness is a symbol of being found out. It's, it's of being completely known, and yet being laid bare and known to the bottom of who you are. Uh, you are still loved and accepted. And this is what every human being longs for, this place where we are known to the bottom, all of our faults, all of our imperfections, and yet we're still loved and accepted. And this is what we experience with God. God is the one who made us and he knows us to our core. And because then of what Christ has done, we're, we're no longer like Adam who was hiding in the bushes, but instead we are now covered. We are, we are clothed in Christ and his righteousness so that we can stand before God today naked with no shame. And marriage is a place where we also experience this being able to be naked with no shame. And you ask, well, how, how, how does this work itself out in a marriage? Well, marriage is the place where we undress ourselves of all of our self-protection and our masks, our secrets. It's it's where we lay bare our fears, our insecurities, our weaknesses. All of it. Our hopes, our dreams. It's, it, it's the place where, where, where a spouse becomes the safest place in the world to, to their spouse. Where, where, where the spouse just knows that, that this is a place where, where I can be naked emotionally, relationally, and spiritually with someone who is just going to love me. And see, the reason why this is, this is in marriage is because it can only be experienced in the context of, of a covenant. And this is why God says that, that a man will, will leave his family and cleave to his spouse. To cleave literally means to make a covenant. It's a public vow that is made. And I can attest to this. After being married for 30 years, what binds Libby and I together, it's not the stuff of Hollywood. I, I hope some of the stuff of Hollywood is, is in our marriage, but I know it's not even our emotions, it's not our feelings, it's, it, it's not romance, it's not sex. It, it's, it's our promise to each other. That's what binds us together, that we both know that we are all in. Come hell or high water, I have her back. She has my back. We are 100% in total solidarity with each other. That's the purpose of marriage. And this is the power of covenant. And I want to say to all the unmarrieds right now, our world right now screams that, that relationship and the possibilities of marriage all flow out of good romance and good sex. Don't believe it. You should be looking right now for your best friend. And I can tell you the best romance and the best sex flow out of a covenant union between two people. That's God's order. 
God designed marriage for the purpose of oneness. God also designed marriage for, to fulfill the creation mandate. Uh, go back in your Bibles to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, because Jesus started off with this. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. First, I want us to see what God made Adam and Eve to be. They are image bearers. They are endowed with the glory of God. They are made a little less than God. Not just so they can reflect that glory back to God, but so they can reflect the glory of God into all creation. And when you read these verses, you see too that, that God does something amazing. He not only makes them in his image, but he essentially creates the world and then gives the keys to, to, the, to the whole creation and says, here are the keys to my kingdom. They're yours. The whole earth is yours. Explore it, cultivate it, care for it, cause it to flourish for my glory. And creation then in, in Genesis 2 doesn't just end with two people who hold the keys to God's creation or even a male and a female, but creation ends with God taking the male, joining the male to the female. Creation ends with marriage. Because this is how God wants his world to be governed. His basic unit for governing the world, of bringing shalom to chaos, of sustaining, nurturing, causing uh, his good creation to flourish and become all that he made it to be, it's marriage and the creation of a home. And this is why Jesus makes this connection. He connects Genesis 1:27. God made them male and female and then brings that to Genesis 2 with God ending creation with marriage. Because God is not a globalist. His most basic means of bringing his government, his rule to the world is through a husband and a wife establishing a God-fearing home where Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you want to know why all these things that we are talking about right now are under huge attack today, Gender, marriage, family. It's because the enemy knows what God's about. And this is why it's a travesty when the government seeks to be the parents, when it seeks to replace the parents. When the government seeks a parent's responsibility usurps it. We don't talk politics here, do we? But I'm just going to throw this out here. Here's a commercial. Say just a little bit more about it next week. Proposal three, that's on the ballot this November. 
actually is attempting to do all those things. It is attempting to usurp a parent's authority and the home and God's most basic unit of governing things. Vote no. I didn't, I didn't say that for that, okay? I didn't. I didn't say that for that. I said it because, most importantly, parents, what kind of home are you establishing right now? In your home right now, do you have a, a shared mission for your home that's not just about storing up treasures on earth, that's not just about sports, success, vacations, making money, but as a family, you're about storing up treasures in heaven. Is the mission of your home right now for Christ and his kingdom? What about the vision for your children? I think we know in our culture today, children are viewed as accidents, inconveniences, they're a pain. That's not what Jesus says. All you gotta keep doing is reading Mark chapter 10. He says, let the little children come to me for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' vision for children is that we would love them, that we would invest in them, that we would disciple them, that we, are, we point them to Christ. And parents, that starts with you in the home. Or think about the path that Jesus is walking right now. He is literally not just walking a road. He is walking to the cross. And the cross forever changed marriage. The cross even gave marriage greater purpose. I was thinking about Paul in Ephesians 5 this week when he's talking about marriage. He gets so caught up in talking about the gospel that he literally has to tell them, wait a second, I'm not talking about the gospel, I'm talking about marriage because you can't talk about marriage without talking about the gospel. And what do I mean by the gospel? The gospel in its essence is that we in and of ourselves are, are lost, we are dead in our sin, we are separated from God, we lost the marriage for which we've been made. We were totally unfaithful, but God in his infinite love didn't give, us, give up on us. He wanted us back. He came across all worlds to find us, to provide a way back to God. He became flesh. He lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And that's the gospel. And every marriage is to proclaim that. Our marriages every day are to be like a passion play putting that on display. In Paul in Ephesians 5, he spells it out. In fact, I can boil it down uh, to one word. It's the word selflessness. And God calls both the husband and the wife to a specific kind of selflessness. Uh, for the wife, it's, it's selfless submission. Yep, I said the word. <laughs> And I understand that that word today is, is, is a hateful world, uh, word in our world today. I mean, in our culture, we submit to bosses. Uh, we might submit to government, but, but not in a relationship. But this is what we know about God. God isn't sexist. God is not a misogynist. Far from it. We also know that woman is the crown of creation. 
Every man here knows that. At least you laughed. You could have said amen. I don't know why. I mean, when you consider the path that Jesus is walking to the cross, why, why we get so uptight about this word. Especially when you understand that, that when Paul's talking about marriage, the first thing he says is submit one to another. Submission ought to characterize every Christian relationship. Especially marriage. I submit to Libby. Libby submits to me. There's mutual submission that happens in our marriage. That's why wives can embrace this word. We can, you can embrace this instruction. I don't even think there's a word that, that better defines Jesus' life and ministry. He says, my whole life is that of submission to my Father in heaven. And submission in our world might be a sign of weakness. But submission in the world of Christ is a sign of strength. Only strong, capable, secure people like Jesus are actually capable of submission. And remember, a husband is not a boss. A husband is not a master. A husband is one who is called to love his wife with his very life. And see, when a wife does this, entrusts her life to her husband in this way, a watching world sees something that's very Jesus-like. The gospel's being proclaimed. Think about what it says about Jesus in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a slave, becoming a human. And as a God become human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' whole way. This is his life. This is the path that he's walking. He says the humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. He just said the first will be last. The last will be first. Or think about the selflessness that, that Ephesians uh, calls a husband to. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I mean, just dial into those words just as, just as Christ loved his bride, the church. Husbands, you are to love your wives. Jesus loved us with his very life. I mean, think about all the aspects of his love. He delights in us. Husbands, delight in your wife. Jesus pursues us. Husbands, pursue your wife. Jesus protects us. He provides for us. Husbands, protect and provide for your wife. He fights for us. Husbands, fight for your wives. He sacrificed everything for us in spite of us. He died for us. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And if you look at Ephesians 5, it, 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 that just as doesn't even stop there. The text says that one day Jesus is going to present us, his bride, to the Father without stain, blemish, or defect. Just stop and think about that thought, how awesome that is. 
we are to love our wives just as Christ loved his church, that means husbands, one day we will present our wives before Jesus without stain, blemish, or defect. If you wanna know why Jesus stands on divorce, transcends all the rabbis of his day, is because Jesus understands marriage. He designed it. And he knows what's at stake. He knows oneness is at stake. He knows the creation mandate is at stake. He knows that the gospel, cruciformity, it's all at stake. So where do we go from here? Well, let me just ask the simple question. Are you a disciple? I'm not talking to the world. Jesus isn't talking to the world right now. He's talking about people who are coming after him and denying themselves and taking up their cross and following him. As a husband, as a wife, are you walking this path? Of course his way is narrow. He says it. Of course his way asks a lot of us. But this is the path that leads to life. This is the path that leads to joy, all-consuming joy. And this path doesn't just lead to a death, to a cross, but that cross leads to a resurrection and new life. I was pretty emotional at times this week preparing this message. In fact, the song that kept coming to my mind is that song that we sang came to my rescue. I can't believe I've been married for 30 years. <laughs> when, uh, when Libby and I got married, I, I can say this, uh, we both know this, we were, we were proud, we were cocky, we were in our young 20s. In fact, in our minds, we had this attitude that we were gonna show the world what marriage is like. As many of you know, we have quite a story to tell in this regard. Uh, five years into our marriage, uh, we were incredibly selfish and unfaithful, and we weren't even close to having a marriage that reflected what's been laid out today. And so we were, at that time, left with two options, and we talked about these options for about three months, literally. We could either divorce each other or we could humbly go God's way and, and hope for a miracle. Because that's literally what it felt like at that time. Somehow we decided to humble ourselves. And in that process, God, God just uh, humiliated us. He, he rubbed our noses in all our pride. But he rescued us. He lifted us up out of the mud and the mire. He placed our feet on a rock. He gave us a firm place to stand. And so really this whole week, um, I just couldn't help but think about Libby. Uh, I couldn't help think about everything that I have in this marriage. What we are today, I mean, of course, we have our issues, we have our struggles, uh, but we are, we are two best friends who are doing life together at a very deep level. I, I can't imagine life without her. So many times this week, I thought to myself, 
<laughs> I wouldn't be a pastor. I, I wouldn't. I couldn't do it. I would have quit a long time ago. Without this savior, rescuer, this warrior that God put in my life. But the things I thought about the most is Gabe was two years old when this happened. Wow, Bennett and Kate, never would have happened. Crossroads, we wouldn't be here right now. And that's why I don't care how bad your marriage might be. I absolutely know because of what God did in our marriage that he can redeem it. He can rescue your marriage from the pit. He absolutely can. But you're gonna need to come to Jesus. You're gonna have to come to him as desperate, broken, and humble. And we have such an awesome marriage ministry in this church. It's all led by people who have a story of their marriages being broken and God redeeming them and healing them. Your marriage today could be good. But maybe this morning you're thinking, I want my marriage to be more. I want my marriage to become all that, that, that God intended, all that God designed when he, when he gave us marriage Get together with your spouse this week. Just confess with each other just where you are, uh, what needs to be confessed, and repent. If you're divorced this morning, hear me loud and clear. There are biblical reasons for divorce. And there are certainly no scarlet letters with Christ. Only forgiveness, only redemption. His arms are wide open. And finally this morning, if you're single, there's only one marriage that really matters. God is a husband. And maybe today you wanna to turn over a new leaf and say to God, God, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. God, I did my best to be faithful to your word. Preaching feels like dying. God, our world needs salty, salty Christians in a salty church. God, would you do the work in our lives? May this not just be a, a try harder. I gotta be more, do more. God, as we hear your incredible design for marriage, whether that's marriage at the human level, that only points, to think, points uh, up to the greater marriage with you. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit cause our hearts to repent where repentance is needed. And thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you humble us. Thank you, God, that you're a good father, that you discipline us. 
But your heart, God, is so for us. And I just pray, God, that we would humble ourselves, however your Holy Spirit is speaking that into our lives, that we'd humble ourselves under your almighty hand. And that in due time, you'd pick us up. In Jesus' name, amen.